Broadcasting from deep in the Eublifaris galaxy, on a small planet called Geconia, east of the Albino Hills and south of the raging Lucistic River, comes the one, the only, Gecko Nation Radio. Good evening, citizens of Gecko Nation, and welcome to another edition of Gecko Nation Radio. Today is November 23rd, 2014. Right off the bat, I just want to wish everybody a, a early happy Thanksgiving coming up this week. I hope you guys have a great time with your families and friends, and uh, let's go ahead and see what our co-host Tim is up to. Hey, Tim, you're live on the air. What's going on? Not much. What's going on with you, Dave? Oh, same old stuff, man. I'm down to, I think, one egg left in my incubator, which is cool. But, you know, coming up in December, uh, they'll, they'll start ovulating again and it starts all over. The madness. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice little break, but it doesn't really feel like I'm getting a break. That's, uh, that's certainly a little break. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And... It's a, it basically doesn't seem like the breeding season ever ends, really, because you're either waiting, you're either collecting eggs, waiting for eggs to hatch, and collecting eggs while they're waiting, while you're waiting, and then you're um, setting up baby geckos and you know growing them up. So it's just, it doesn't, there isn't really an end to it. It just keeps going and, and on. Which and is then, cool. and then also, and then also feeding the breeders during the during the non-breeding season to make sure they have enough weight and everything to be right. healthy and get ready for breeding. That's right. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of details, a lot of stuff you got to do, but I don't know. I think that's part of what keeps us, keeps us involved and engaged in it. Yeah. So uh, we, uh, we talked about it a little bit. Are you going to, uh, roommate any of your geckos this year? I am. I'm definitely going to do that. And maybe just for like a month and a half or so. Um, yes. And then bring them out. I think that's, uh, I think I'm going to try it. And not with all of them, but with uh, some of them. You know, just to see how I do. Yeah. You have experience doing Yeah, it? I've got, yeah, I always, I always do it. I actually, um, I have a lot of my breeders have already been, for a month, a month and a half now, um, I've kind of taken them off the heat, and they've just sit, been sitting at around, uh, you know, in the low 70s. And I right. do that for a while to make sure that they don't have any more food in their stomachs. And right. I still, uh, I still give them water about um, once or twice a week. And then now I'm getting ready to put them down a little bit colder. Um, there are a few that are, you know, a little on the skinny side or, you know, not the, none of the babies that I'm raising up are going to go down for brumation, but, uh, and then I also have my corn snakes that, uh, that sometimes I'll brumate them for four months and they they do just fine. That's that's something I should consider too with my corns. Yeah. I never cool them really. Um, really? Let me think about that. Yeah, well, I don't all really the, all the super hot either. So. All the breeders in Florida, you know, put put them in rooms with air conditioning to uh, to brumate them. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Does that help with egg production, I guess? 
I think it's more so of uh, of getting them all uh, getting their timing of uh, of ovulation and breeding all down more uh, you know more at a more predictable pace. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, tonight's show, folks, is going to be really interesting. Um, we're having Travis Coos of Enigmatic Reptiles on, and uh, Travis is very well known for his work with uh, satanic leaf-tailed geckos from the uh, Fantasticus um, lineage. Uh, that's uh, the scientific name for them, Fantasticus, and uh, they are very, very interesting geckos. Um, to me, I've often thought about taking the plunge and getting some. Um, I'm just worried that they're they may they seem a little delicate, but uh, we're going to find out for sure exactly what they're like tonight, what it's like to keep them and breed them, and uh, get some good pointers hopefully from Travis and uh, a lot of good feedback in the group. Thank you guys for your questions and uh, the topics that you'd like us to hit on tonight. I'll make sure I get to as many of them as possible. All right, and uh, we'll. We'll see how it goes. If you guys would like to call in tonight, the call in number is 646-478-5331. And uh, before we get started, I just want to run a couple plugs by you. Check this out. Did you know that since 2006, there's been a treasure trove of history and information on leopard geckos and other species? Well, Gecko Forums is the most extensive database of leopard gecko history on the web right now. Take a look and delve into the past, present, and future of this great community. The biggest contributors, breeders, and hobbyists have left their mark there. Now it's your turn. Look, learn, and post away. Need a place to post animals for sale? Look no further. Visit geckoforums.net and become a member today. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to be the official radio show associated with Gecko Forums. Herpentime Radio is my inspiration for GNR. Justin and JD do a terrific show every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern and have an amazing archive of shows available for download. Visit them at blogtalkradio.com slash herpentime and on Facebook. That's right, folks. Herpentime Radio is great. Check them out. Um, Gecko Nation Radio would not be possible without our amazing sponsors. I'm going to play you a plug of some of them now and... Uh, the rest at the halfway point. Uh, keep in mind, these sponsor plugs are sincere, folks. These guys really are the best at what they do. And uh, mention Gecko Nation Radio when you uh, patronize their businesses. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Reptiles Express is the absolute best live animal shipping company with great low rates. Debbie is the queen of customer service and will make sure your precious cargo gets to where it needs to. They also have a wide array of shipping supplies from deli cups, snake bags, heat packs, and more. Visit reptilesexpress.com and become a member today. Longhorn Geckos is a father and son collaboration. Daryl and Cade Burton specialize in the best supertangelos, pastel raptors, white and yellows, and really nice wild types. Follow them on Facebook at Longhorn Geckos and on their new website coming soon. Ohio Gecko is famous for amazing tangerines, 
snows, and other very unique leopard gecko projects. Thad also has some incredible fat tail morphs available from stingers to starbursts. Visit him online at ohiogecko.com and at expos in the northeast. He is also the owner of geckoforums.net. Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need from Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more. And all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or it can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. That's right, folks. And make sure you take advantage of AB Dragons and their 5% off coupon code using the code GECKO, all, all in caps at checkout. Okay? All right. So, Tim, what do you say we uh, bring on Travis and start our interview? Sounds good. All right. Mr. Travis Goose from Enigmatic Reptiles. You're live on Gecko Nation Radio. How's it going? Not too bad. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Um, yeah, man, these satanic leaf-tail geckos are just definitely something special in in the yes. world of geckos. What, what is it that fascinates you so much about them? Uh, not necessarily just them in particular, but all your oplatus. I mean, they just... I, I enjoy having barbarians where I can actually enjoy the animals as well as the cage. And so, mm-hmm. for me, the the species itself is amazing because they have a lot more personality than you would imagine. It's not a subspecies, so I actually do get to see everything every day. And, uh, I mean, anything that's presented as a challenge, I want that challenge because these animals all, you know, they they need to be kept right, and I want to figure out the best way to do that. Yeah, that's that's the way to do it. If you're going to do it, do it right. Um, Travis, what is... What is it about herpetoculture? How did you get started in herpetoculture, and uh, what made you decide to work with these particular species besides what you just said? Okay. Um, well, my story is not uh, too unsimilar to most other people's where, you know, as a child I was out there catching snakes, lizards, and that would be my friend for the day. So, I mean, a lot of it started as a child just keeping what I caught, then wanting to catch more, then... It uh, progressed into the point where you start actually purchasing animals, you know, your fire-bellied toads, all your basic stuff you start with. So about 20 or so years ago, I was breeding Peruvian red-tailed boas, and I produced my first litter, and from there I was I was just hooked on the reproduction aspect of keeping these animals. And it's kind of, throughout the years, I've changed species, and, you know, from very heavy uh, snake collections to geckos to you know, amphibians, I've kind of bounced around just to keep it interesting for myself. So species I work with, in the past probably about five to six years, I've tried to focus more on uh, what is seen as either difficult or hard-to-work-with species. Uh, just mm-hmm. kind of like I said before, I, I I look at these animals and 
to me, they're some of the most beautiful animals. And everybody's saying, you know, oh, as soon as you get them, they're going to die. Well, that's true if you do it wrong. So I want to figure out how to do it right because I want everybody to be able to enjoy these animals. That's a good point, yeah. Do you think um, – I know I noticed there was some discussion in the group about them, and um, people were talking about them, you know, not reaching pet status yet. And um, do you think a species uh, like the Europlatus will ever uh, become widespread and cared for by, you know, the – the right the the everyday hobbyist, or do you think they're always going to be like an exclusive type of animal for elite keepers and breeders? Yeah. So my opinion on that it kind of sounds like a a catch twenty two to what I just said. I hope they don't reach that pet level status because they mm-hmm. do require more attention, more care. So the amount of animals that fall victim to poor husbandry would be substantially high. So you're talking just to make a marketable animal, there's going to be a lot of them that pay the price. So I -hmm. hope that it stays. I want them to be available, but I always want them to be available to those who are willing to educate themselves and do what's best for the animal. So, I mean, it's kind of of both. I want everybody to have them, but I do think that they should not be, you know, in in all your mom-and-pop pet stores and stuff like that because they just require more, more care and more attention than that. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Go ahead, Tim. I know you have some questions for Travis too. I think uh, I think some you know some of what you guys were just talking about has I think that have already been achieved. You know, of uh, several Europlatus species are widely captive bred and and kept in the U.S. and uh, you know and pretty widely available. Of course, you gotta get you gotta know you know where to look for them and. Uh, you do have to kind of seek them out, so I think that's uh, that's something very cool about them. And uh, you know, you don't see them on every table when you go to a reptile show, but, um, yeah. but they definitely catch your eye when when you do see them. Yeah. Um, Travis, how how did you uh, or when did you start working with the Europlatus species? Um, I started with them, I think about five, maybe six years ago is when I actually started keeping Europlatus. Um, kind of like everybody else, I've, I've stared at Fantasticus forever, and I've had them presented to me in deals. And um, Although I love a lot of the other Europlatus visually, there's not many that kind of captivate you as much as uh, Fantasticus does. Now, that's not to take away. I mean, when you look at, uh, you know, a Lineatus, highly over, you know, under, underrated species that, you know, you see them, they're still imported, they look gangly and sick. But when you actually see them thriving, I mean, it's amazing how beautiful these animals are and how much personality they have. So, I mean, once once you start getting into the Europlatus, it's, I mean, you you kind of catch yourself trying to stop from buying more or acquiring everything in the in the genus. That's that seems to be a common problem with many <laughs> keepers. Yeah. Yeah. And did you start off with uh, with captive bred specimens? Yeah, I I kind of I know somebody has to do the dirty work, and I know uh, Lewis does a lot of work with imports, and he just had an article the other day, uh, or you know, a Facebook post or something where he was showing um, the the parasite loads on some stuff he just brought in from Madagascar. I mean, so me personally, I didn't have the correct size uh, facility to have a, a really adequate quarantine area at that time. 
So when I was getting into them, I didn't want to bring them in and jeopardize my current collection, as well as not be able to provide what they actually need to have a real good, thorough quarantine, where then obviously at that point I'd feel good releasing them into my, my general pop rooms. So everything I've ever done with, with any year old platys is, has all been captive bred. Um, I mean, a lot. I give a lot of credit to those who import them and find success with, with wild cocks. Um, unfortunately, like I said earlier, you know, there's a lot of demand for these, especially Fantasticus in the past couple months has blown up in interest. So you're going to see a lot of animals moving around that, I mean, people are looking for that quick buck and these animals are going to fall in bad hands. That's true. I actually fell victim. Well, it was my own fault. I saw a nice uh, Fantasticus at a show one time from one of the wild caught dealers and uh, it looked perfectly healthy. But yeah. I'm, that, I'm, sh- I'm sure that thing was stressed to the max because it lasted two days for me, and I had it set up right. And uh, yeah. you know, yeah, I got it. I think I paid two fifty for it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'll never do that again. I'll never. And, and I knew I shouldn't. Have, even when I was handing over the money, I was saying to myself, "Dave, don't do this." <laughs> and yeah. sure, sure, sure enough, you know. But I, yeah, like yeah. You, Travis, I, I would stick with captive born and bred. Yeah, there's. Well, you guys already kind of mentioned it. There's so many breeders who have become more successful. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Fantasticus in particular. They are not very hard to breed, keep, anything. But where most people that are breeding them um, see their, their downfalls is in, in rearing the babies. It, there's a lot of people who, I mean, if you have a 50 to 70% success rate, survival rate, of babies, then it's a good year. And, you know, that that sounds okay, but, I mean, it's, it's definitely not. There's a lot of little things that even now, just uh, this past year, I think it was, it might have been Kevin posted something about how he doesn't directly spray his babies anymore and noticed a remarkable increase on survival rates and stuff. So even now, everybody's still figuring out little things to tinker with. But with the Europlatus community, slightly different than a lot of the other ones because everybody knows in the herp world it's I mean it's cutthroat but with species like this where there's still a lot to be kind of figured out with them to really get them going right there's a lot of information sharing which I think is amazing that's how it should be it is and I, that's what we try to do in, in my group Echinacea however it doesn't always work um, you know 4,000 people are hard to I don't know uh, yeah. I don't know it's hard to get them and, keep everybody happy and but uh you know I yeah. I'd like to see more of that I'd like to see more of that attitude with leopard gecko owners. But you know, yeah, because well, these leopard gecko owners are gonna move on to become some of them are gonna move on to become uh leaf tail owners at some some point too. So Yeah. You know Yeah, I mean I've bred leopard geckos and fat tails for a long time. I I mean I created my own, you know basically polygenetic morphs that I've confused other things with and I sold out of everything in my hot room, so I'm no longer working with any anything in the hot room besides my Strophirus ciliaris. Everything else is gone. But really? the difference in with yeah, I, I no longer work with fat tails, leopard geckos, none of that stuff. Um, Why is that? Um, a lot of it came because with my interest and and desire to really work with the rare stuff, I found myself when I would look in the incubator, I was expecting something particular from every baby and if it wasn't what I wanted I almost felt like let down and at that point I looked at it and said I'm doing this for the wrong reason 
So when I was morph chasing and not getting what I wanted, some people say, oh, you know, that's good. You're working on it. Go for next year. But to me, that desensitized everything about me keeping this animal and turning it into a business. Not I mean, the, the love of it is there, but there's incentive. And I, I don't want that because I do this for a hobby. I, mean, I, I have my own job and everything like that. I, I mean, I do this for fun. And when it's not yeah. fun, I, I just, I had to stop it. So by getting okay, rid of the I hot room, I'm able that. to expand my cold room. Yeah, I can appreciate and, and respect that, absolutely. Yeah, I, I understand, and that's how I feel about uh, morph morph making and, you know, selective breeding with leopard geckos. I'm fascinated by it. I love it. And yeah. I, I mean, and that's that's important. If you don't have that, yeah, why are you doing it? You know, exactly. Yeah. But you, you, and did, I did, you did make some really nice leopard geckos. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it was fun. It definitely was a lot of fun, and, I mean, I still love my animals to death, but once mm-hmm. once I started comparing things and seeing where I really wanted to spend my time, it it just yeah. wasn't right for me to stay there because I wasn't in it for the right reasons anymore. Awesome animals, right? A lot of fun if you like the morphs, but for me, I'd rather I chose to get away from morphs and just go for um, just you know natural phenotypic beauty. Yeah, uh, I agree. That's that's cool, and the. The satanic leaf tails. How did they get the name satanic leaf tails? By the way, do you know? Nah, I mean, there's a lot of things where, um, just because of the the crests over their eyes and stuff, where they could semi look demonic. Um, a lot of the times, I won't say a lot of times, but frequently, I'll find a lot of mine suspended, kind of like, like hanging, so kind of like the Dracula type effect with the crescents over their eyes, and mm-hmm. just just kind of their look. I, I mean, I guess somebody decided that they could do that. But when you look at the the actual name, Europlatus fantasticus, I mean, it seems like the opposite because you're saying how fantastic it is. But then at the same time, you're saying it's demonic. So, right, and their 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 structure is more geared to to resemble dried leaves more than anything Correct. else. It's not. Yeah. Right. It's not yeah, one, made to look scary. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on how you could. Could twist it. In my opinion, definitely not trying to look scary, but if you're saying a dead leaf as opposed to a live leaf, I guess you're saying dead. I don't know. Just the amount of... If you ever have time, just go through some of my images on... Uh, I posted a bunch back on Facebook. And they do have some where, you know, it's a almost solid black gecko. you got lichen on its neck and red eyes. and I mean, it, They look awesome. And so people just draw in the cues of that, you know, everything dark and red. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and they they range and there's so many different uh, like well, I've seen a lot of the pictures that you post they, they look fabulous and um, those babies they range in color like some of them are uh, more of a lighter color some have more like maroon reddish tones to them and black yeah. even so they yeah. can really vary that, right yeah they they certainly do one thing that's good with them is for the most part they they maintain that color so if it hatches out and it's a lot of red burgundy to it, it's going to maintain a red burgundy look, but you're going to develop new things, lichen patches or little spots here or there, which would just add to the depth of their pattern. So when you see a baby, if it's black, it's going to stay dark through life. It's not going to go through some big, you know, big change. But they do range from everything. Most common, most of the fantasticus you see tend to be more of like a, uh, like a light brown, maybe a soft leaf vein to it, some green spots. That's like your most common pattern. Uh, me personally, I have quite a bit of dark animals in my collection, so 
I have uh, a lot of my hatchlings come out relatively dark, or I have a lot of heavy lichen animals. So they kind of pass that along. But what's, what's hardest for me is I have a, I have, there's really no names to anything, but I call him a blonde male because he's really light. And it's not a brown light. It's like a really light tan. And it's hardest for me to duplicate him. I, I've only had two other babies come out looking like him. It's just angled. No. Why not? Um, Tim, you with me? I'm here. Travis, why don't we uh, get into some of your uh, husbandry? Why don't you start out with um, with how you keep your fantasticus? All right. So um, my adults, so anything, I, mean, I don't weigh mine all the time, so I don't do anything by gram weight. I do it by their physical size. So I'll say anything that's a sub-adult to adult. I keep those in a 12 by 12 by 18. I use exoterras. I do everything the same, just repetitive motion, similar to everybody that keeps them in racks. The more similar everything is, the faster you can maintain everything and control everything. So I do everything in, in the uh, 12 by 12 by 18 exoterras. I do a coconut core, bamboo charcoal, sagna moss, um, peat moss mix for the substrate. Um, the reason I use charcoal is a lot of you know, a lot of dark frog people and stuff like that. Anytime you're throwing a substantial amount of water in any sort of substrate, if you actually do a pH test on the acidity of it, you need to make sure that you're diluting it some. So the charcoal helps reduce the amount of pH level in my soil. Um, so I, that's my substrate. I do cork uh, uh, flats, kind of leaned on the side. I do a fake plant, real plant, and some leaf litter. Now, when I first got into Fantasticus, everybody's saying, oh, it's, you know, it's arboreal. You need nothing but tree height. They don't even want the bottom. Just tree height, tree height, tree height. And it was many years ago. I was just staring in my room one night, and I told my wife, I said, you know, why does everything look dead if they want to be at the top of the tree? So I completely changed everything, and that's when I started adding in more leaf litter, doing a lot of lower shrubbery style stuff. So instead of making it, for something like, uh, let's say, a sycorae or a hankali, where you're throwing up a lot of big vertical branches and stuff like that, I started decorating more, providing more enrichment lower, and I saw a big difference in activity. The more active hunters, they would, you know, they were more willing to come out when I was in the room, uh, things of that nature. So one of the things I changed, like I said, is I dropped some of the plants down lower, um, I still had to make sure I could get good airflow in there to allow the, the substrate to dry a little bit. But as much as I could jam in there without overcrowding it, and that's that's what I personally found to work best. And everything in, in the cold room is set up on mister systems, so they all get misted four times a day where I live. And I, one, one thing I, I do want everybody to understand is how I keep things is how it works for me. You could live somewhere different, you know, different elevations, barometric pressures, ambient humidity, light cycles. There's so many things that come into play when you're working with a species like this that what I'm saying is what works for me. I live in Southern California where it regularly gets over 100 degrees. So for me, I have to mist more often because I have almost zero humidity. Plus, since my house does get that hot, I run a secondary standalone air conditioner in that room, which sucks the moisture right out of the air of the whole room. So I mist four times a day. Most mistings are about 10 to 12 seconds, and that's basically just to keep the humidity up without allowing too much drying of everything. 
and I at my night cycle, so right around, I think I have it set for about 9.45 right now, is my heavy misting, and they get misted for about 25 seconds. So that's the basics on how I keep my adults. Um, my hatchlings, I Sorry, keep Travis, a lot of those. Can I, yep, go ahead. Can I uh, ask you something real quick? The, the charcoal that you mentioned, do you actually yeah. put a charcoal layer uh, underneath the substrate, mm-hmm. or do you actually just no, put no, no. charcoal into the substrate? <clears throat> Yeah, I mix it in, and I use bamboo charcoal because it's uh, most eco-friendly. You're not burning down forests to get charcoal when bamboo's has to grow grass. So I use bamboo charcoal, and I use uh, uh, roughly about maybe five-eighths chunks, five-eighths uh, almost circular chunks, and uh, just spread throughout the, the substrate. I mix everything up. I used to do a false bottom, um, which predominantly would – would be good for if you're running an enclosure where you're worried about if your mister leaks or something like that so that you're elevated up, as well as it allows kind of more air circulation to get through the substrate to dry it out. But like I was saying with my, my humidity issues, when I had my false bottoms, it was even harder for me to maintain humidity in the cages. So I did get rid of the false bottom and everything. All my substrates mixed straight and just put on the bottom because all the exoterras have the some like four and a half inches up. They have those vents before the doors open. So any any flooding in the cage would exit the cage. Okay, thanks. Sorry, uh, go ahead with uh, yeah, no problem. how you set up the, the juvies. Yeah, so I basically only do two stages. I do um, my hatchlings up to, to sub-adults and my sub-adults and adults. The only difference is as they grow, I just increase the size of their enclosures. So my hatchlings and... Yeah, we'll just say sub, uh, prior to sub-adults, but bigger than your hatchling. They're both kept in cricket keepers. I use. I start off with paper towel substrate and uh, just, can't think of the name of the little branch right now, but basically just a bunch of branches in a semi, it's like a, from corner to corner, because they do like to lay inverted on the branches. So if you do everything straight up and down, obviously that would kind of be best, but they do they don't want horizontal they have to have a, a, an angle to it for them to be most comfortable. So a few branches going back and forth and uh, some leaf substrate, just a couple pieces, um, and I use a fake plant. The only difference is I'll use a bigger one as they get older. But I try to go simplistic, one, because of hunting. Uh, they're not, like I said, a lot of people lose their babies. I actually have been doing really well with my babies where I've had this past year, I had over 85% survival rate, which I was happy about. And uh, so I do simple. One, it helps them with feeding. Two, it allows me to monitor things a little bit easier. And three, like I said, with, with all my conditions, the more I put in there, the harder I was having, the harder time I was having with keeping them alive and thriving. So keeping it simple, but adequate is what works best. And what kind of uh, temperatures do you like to keep them at? I try to keep the the babies a little bit cooler than the adults, but everything, all my fantasticus stay no higher than about 74, and I drop them down to 68 Fahrenheit. And so, do you do any any hot spots for the adults? No, I do run UV lights on top of all my cages. That's kind of an optional thing. Um, as you know, if you're going to be supplementing with calcium, you either need UV or D3 in order to synthesize the, the calcium itself. So Uroplatus, one of the biggest problems with breeding is um, females will will um, 
oh man, I'm drawing a blank right now. Uh, the females they'll they'll start to go into hypocalcemia because they're so they, they I don't know if you know, but they're a hard shell species. So just the egg production itself demands a lot of calcium. So if you're not shoving a lot of calcium in them, you're going to watch them crash. And yeah. when, when I talk, whenever you ask about feeders, I'll talk about some of the feeders I do in a second. But I do run UV lights to kind of help with that process, and it also gives a slightly, not much, but just a couple degrees um, temperature increase. But I can tell you that I never see them, you know, like I never see them trying to get to that spot to thermoregulate. So it's I have one, but they don't seek it. Okay. okay. Yeah, that's interesting. And why don't uh, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, how you feed them? All right. So, like I was saying, there's you definitely have to watch the uh, the calcium intake on them. So everything I do, uh, calcium and supplements, they need it for sure. Feeder wise, I do adequately sized crickets. So my my hatchlings, I actually do get them on crickets. And I'll use um, lateralis limps, uh, nymphs, and sometimes I've never really seen them actively hunting them, but they disappear. But I'll use a flightless fruit flies, and I I just get them every now and then just to try them out. I can't I wouldn't say that I see them hunting them, but if you have access to them, it's not going to hurt. They do disappear. So for the babies, that's what I use. For the adults, same thing. Um, Every single one of my fantastics, except for one male, all of them uh, will eat from a dish, which is good because that allows me to feed my dubias. So I do dubias, the rusty reds, um, crickets, and I breed my own isopods. And the isopods, I bump up um, the the volume of them in the cages because just leaving them in there, that's perfectly fine too because they're just going to um, kind of do their work on all, all the debris and stuff throughout the cage, keep it kind of keeping it clean, eco-clean. and uh, But they're just little balls of calcium. So having isopods in the enclosure, I definitely would suggest it to anybody breeding them. Uh, and that, that's what I do. It works for me. Some people say they never seem to eat them. I've seen them actively hunting them. So that's basically what I run with, everything adequately sized, of course. And uh, make sure you pull, especially crickets, during uh, breeding season, if they have leftovers, you know, after, well, I usually give them about two days. If I go through and I flip, flip over a leaf and there's a bunch of crickets, I pull them all out because if your female lays, those crickets will destroy that egg in no time. Yeah, they will get to them. Um, Travis, Kevin asks, uh, uh, he'd like to hear about why Fantasticus, or any Europlanus for that matter, is not suitable, it's not a suitable captive for 95% of Silatus owners. Why are they not suitable for who? Yeah, for Silatus owners. And I don't really know too much about where he's coming from on that. Uh, Kevin, if you're listening and you want to call in, call in. But, um, yeah, that was his question. I found that interesting. Well, I I don't know where he's pulling that statistic or anything, but... I don't know. I, yeah. I, I don't want to sit here and act like I know what he's talking about and say something that wouldn't be accurate. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, we talked about the food. How about 
where exactly, you know, what kind of climate, I mean, you keep it, you keep them relatively cool, kind of like cave geckos. Um, where are they from in, in nature? Where Madagascar. They Madagascar. Madagascar, okay. Yeah, okay. So do you, do you have to, I guess, give them a change in season at all? I personally don't, um, just because a lot of the season that you'd be changing is going to be superficial anyway. I mean, it's kind of both. I could change whatever I want, light cycles, misting cycles and everything, but I can't change my barometric pressures. I can't change things like that that are also natural triggers. So for me personally, I don't mess around with a lot of that. I do adjust my light cycles, and I do increase my uh, my mistings kind of as my seasons change, but I don't try to artificially do anything with the season to stimulate or anything like that. But... I don't know. So, kind of thinking about why he asked that question, um, I guess what I would say is people who tend to work with something like that, um, one, you're feeding um, either a powder liquid diet, but two, they're completely different. I mean, you look at people that, it's no different than if I said, why shouldn't somebody who breeds nothing but leopard geckos just go buy a bunch? It's a completely different step of husbandry requirement, right. humidity. There's so many different aspects to it. So I, I don't know. I wouldn't say that they shouldn't do it. I wouldn't say 95%, but I should say 100% of people should educate themselves before they do it. So any right. species worker can do it, but don't ever compare it to something that's not comparable. Right. Okay. I, that makes sense. Do you think, before we go on to like the, uh, you know, the breeding and whatnot, um, yeah, Say say somebody purchases some geckos, okay, some fantasticus, and and you and I talked about this because I'm interested in getting some, and if I ever get them, I'm going to see you first. And I, I was particularly concerned about having them shipped. Um, yeah. How how delicate how delicate are these guys? Your captive bred are pretty hardy. Um, I've never had any issues, and uh, kind of like anything else, the the better you pack it, the less stress that they you know have along the route. If you're doing adequate temperature checks as far as where the package is going, how you need to pack it, um, always, always, always err on the cold side. Do not get them too hot. They will die. So err on the cold side. Like any other reptile, it's a lot easier to have them be cold and bring them back than be hot because it's going to die. So I keep them, I get them real moist, pack them relatively tight. Um, Depending on the size of it, I may or may not put a... uh, a little stick and kind of hot glue it in there just to give them something solid, firm, instead of bouncing around on some sort of moss or whatever else you decide to pack them in. But Mm -hmm. shipping them, it's really no different. Just do your homework on on kind of ask ask other people, basically, is what I'd say. And and I don't want to sit here and say this is the only way, but how I pack them, I've never had issues. So. Okay. And would you you be able to... um ship them in the wintertime or you'd have to wait for the temperatures to to be right? Well, it depends. With with how these winters have been going lately, it's uh, it's feast or famine. I mean, you get a really small window and you have to take into account all the airports because you don't want your animals getting stuck at these airports because, um, like anything, if you get too close to freezing, it's going to do just the same. Reptiles uh, being cold-blooded, they're the water in their blood will start to crystallize and they're still alive. They just can't do anything about it. And that's horrible when you think about it. That's why people yeah. that freeze their animals, they really don't understand what's happening when that animal dies. 
Yeah, that's a whole whole different thing. So basically what I would say is, yes, I can ship in the winter, and I do, but it's always going to be case-dependent because I'm in Southern California. My winters are a frigid 65 degrees. So I can ship all year. It's where is it going? Where's the layover? Right. Memphis, the Memphis hub is always the Bermuda Triangle of of the FedEx hubs. You never know what's going to happen there. Exactly. Um, Yeah. All right. It's always better to err on the safe side. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. And when, and when they go through the shipping process, uh, and you and you receive the animal, um, the the new owner, um, how 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 long does it take them to acclimate into their new home, provided the new owner is doing it the right way? Yeah, that's a good question. The last part you said is most important: the right way. I could send right. you a perfectly healthy animal. You could have everything you think perfect, but too hot. That animal will never acclimate. So if you don't have it yeah. set up and Kind of for the record, like, I will never sell Fantasticus, any Europlatus, any of my species that require, typically it's going to be something that requires colder temperatures or that's seen as harder to keep. I will not sell them unless I'm confident the person knows what they're doing. And I do turn away a lot of sales because, you know, someone say, oh, I want to buy these. Can I keep it in a rack? Yeah, I'm not responding. Um, (laughs) So... I mean, if, if you have everything set up relatively well, and what I always suggest is start with simplicity. Don't throw them in a cage that's full of everything because they don't know it yet. You know, so the biggest thing is when you get it, make sure your temperatures are good and hydrate them. Get them. It, you don't have to offer food. These It's a reptile. They can't go as long as some of these other species. You know, we'll just say leopard geckos, fat tail, something that's storing ample amount of fat. But being a reptile, still being cold-blooded, and their colder temperatures, they don't, you know, they could go a good week, two weeks, before you're you need to be like a little more concerned with what's going on. But hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. Get them hydrated, get them cold, leave them alone. You're gonna want to sit there and hold it, your brand new Fantasticus, take pictures, post it on Facebook every 20 minutes like everybody else does, and then you never see them post it again because it probably yeah. died. Leave it alone. Yeah. Right. If you want to right. hold it, get a bearded dragon. Good point. We got a leopard gecko. <laughs> yeah, along exactly. those yeah. along those same lines, Travis. Uh, are there any species that you think are kind of a good um, introductory species to uh, to maybe have some experience with before you get into into the Fantasticus? Yeah. Well, there's. It's kind of a. My whole take on it is there's not a whole lot that steps up to it. I mean, you could start with. Like I mean, he just said ciliatus, but it's so they're so different. What I would suggest, and what I typically suggest to people is, you know, if you've worked with things that have slightly higher requirements, because it changes. I mean, somebody could be working with some sort of Peridora species or something that just requires special attention, even if it's, you know, we'll say Strophurus, where it might need hot, okay? But you understand the microenvironment and the importance of it. So I wouldn't say there's one species straight into it, but if you're going to have basically a stepping stone, I always recommend something like the Europlatus hankli, something that can take hotter temperatures. They're quite a bit more uh, durable than any of the even allies. But so you get to have something that's almost equally as beautiful, but six times as big and a little bit hardier and more readily available. So that drives price down. So it's something that's kind of a better stepping stone. So I typically will tell people, hey, Get a get a hankly, have it for a year. Understand how they work, 
and then now you understand the gist of Europlatus, step into the Fantasticus. But if you're going straight into Fantasticus, by all means, it's 100% doable, and you can do it very successfully. You just need to do your homework, and you have to understand that they are not, you know, most people that want them going, basically, I'll just say cold turkey. It's people that go from rack animals, then they, they want it. Oh, I, I have a display case or display tank. I want to have some Fantasticus in it. Great. What do you know about them? Make sure you know all that. So that's it. There's really isn't a good stepping stone. Just homework. Do your homework. Right, and for people that are wanting to do their homework, uh, you know, hopefully this this show will be a good show for them to turn to for some information. But where else would they? Uh, where's a good place to go? Are there any good books on this particular species? Um, the, I haven't really followed any of the uh, actual printed literature. Um, kind of sounds bad, but I just don't have time for a lot of that unless they make it on the ebook, or I could do it on the go because I'm constantly moving. Uh, two kids, everything like that. It's real hard to get time. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a lot of good care sheets. Uh, Mike Martin had a really good one. A little bit outdated since it was geared a lot towards the uh, the wild-caught aspect of them and how to deal with that and how to receive them in and things of that nature. But there's a lot of good care sheets. There's a lot of knowledgeable people that you can find Facebook has destroyed and saved the hobby. So there's a lot of good people on Facebook that if you go to some of the Europlatus groups, you know, there's, uh, you have like, uh, we'll say Thomas, you have people like Kevin, uh, Karen, Lewis, Matt Jazz. I mean, these are just some of the guys that, when I was getting into it, or even now, if, if I'm like, if I observe something, I'll ask them, hey, do you see that? Does that look normal? How do yours act? You know, so there's a lot of good people that will help you. And there's a lot of good information already out there. And it's amazing what Google search can find for you. And it's amazing what doing a little bit of homework and then asking questions to people will do. You know, if I, I get inquiries or, you know, I'll, I'll have people email me questions. And if I could tell you're actively trying to learn it, I will spend as much time as I need or you need to be comfortable with it. But if you come to me with zero effort exerted and you want me to just hand it to you, I, I'm not going to help you because I won't even sell it to you at that point anyway. I don't think you should have it. Yeah. So just do a little bit of research. There's, Like I just said, there's a – I can't think of the name of this website. It's one of like Free Weebly or something like that sites. But there's a really good Fantasticus write-up. Like I said, a little bit outdated. But what I do like about it is it's it's not a this is how you do it. It's here's options and here's why type of care sheet, and that's what needs to be done. So let me do some research, read those, and when you have questions based on that or specifics based off, hey, I live in this type of environment, what do you do? You know, my misting cycles won't match somebody who lives in Florida. It's... There's a lot of variables, so do some homework, mm-hmm. then ask anybody you want all the questions. This information is really already out there. Can you elaborate on how you how you feel that Facebook has um, destroyed and saved the hobby? Well, it, it saves, this is how I'll say it, it destroyed morph hobbies and saved exotic rare species. And while I'll say it destroyed morph hobbies, is it allowed everybody that was in it for the money to the fame and just really put a negative taste at a wide 
widespread. You know, it used to be even back before you had all these uh the uh not the blogs, what am I thinking of? Help me here, like echo oh forums, there you go. So you have all these forums. Um and that used to be pretty good. I mean it was moderated, so it kept it kind of informative, but a lot of opinionated. But then you throw Facebook in the mix and you have so many people, hey, I just bought this gecko, and next year you, they have a website, a logo, and they know everything. They're naming everything. And, or, you know, you have somebody who was buying everything wholesale, opens up a brick-and-mortar store, and somehow is like a gecko god. So there's yeah. a lot of people <laughs> who come into the hobby and make a name of themselves without ever having to prove it, but that's because Facebook is a tool where marketing, you create this false following where everybody believes, oh, you have 10,000 fans? You must be amazing. Where some of the best keepers I know don't even have Facebook. You'll never know who they are because they don't care. They don't want to get caught up in that stuff. So it hurts the hobby because you have so many people cutting each other's throats publicly. And then there's so much opinion that is spoken as fact that it it kind of hurts the hobby because then you have people who don't know or you have people that then at that point refuse to learn for themselves. I know a huge Probably. one, and I did a thing about it with uh, leopard geckos was particulate substrate. Everybody could argue that so they're blue in the face. Oh my God! But, we just had that same problem in my group with the with the, with the sand. Yeah, yeah. With the leopard geckos. Yeah. I, I did a post. I don't remember where it was. I did it on Facebook, um, just to prove a point because. I get added to all these groups. I don't know how. I wish I could turn it off. I'm in like 50,000 groups. I have to go through and delete them all the time. So I'm in a group, and everybody's talking, just destroying this person. Oh, I just got this gecko, and it it was a picture on sand. And, I mean, it wasn't until like comment 70 where somebody came with a suggestion. Everybody else was just destroying the person, not knowing anything that what they knew or didn't know. So that's what's wrong. You can't educate somebody. Don't just destroy them. And so I I always argue things because my Fantasticus are on particulate substrate. I've never had a impaction problem. My leopard geckos and stuff like that, okay, I kept them on, on a, I use shelf liner. But my lay box had particulate substrate. So where do you draw the line? That's up to you. Where's the risk? That's up to you and your experience. You can argue all that. But nobody ever wants to argue when you breed your female, you are guaranteed reducing her life. But that's okay because you profit from it. And so it's it's a catch-22. You can argue all that stuff. And, yes, I am, just for the record, I don't think leopard gecko should be kept on sand. But that doesn't mean particulate substrate is bad because you can keep them on other particulate substrate and they'll be perfectly healthy. Yeah, so there's yeah. that's, that's how I think Facebook, that's where I think Facebook kind of ruins the hobby. Things like that where... Instead of people actually being able to have an educated conversation and, you know, I, I listen to everybody. You don't agree with me? Cool. Tell me why. Tell me, where you know, where's your founding to your statements? Is it experience or is it hearsay? And then you go from there. But the problem is, is you get keyboard warriors that, you know, ex-breeder said this is the way to do it and all his 10,000 followers come and bash you for it. Well, you accomplished absolutely nothing, didn't better the community and just ostracize people who didn't know better. So that's that's my take on uh, Facebook. Uh, I, I think it's an excellent opinion. I I, I, uh, I admire that approach, and I think, I mean, that's one of the ideals I try to have 
in in the group I run. Um, I want to try to keep it as a learning environment, and um, we don't tolerate people that you know bash newcomers when they when they ask those repetitive monotonous questions over yeah. and over. And, and if and if they do, we, they they're out, and they can go do that in another group. But yeah, I mean, how are exactly. people supposed to learn? Yeah, how are they supposed to learn learn if they if they try to seek information and and instead of getting the information, they just get bashed on? I mean, that's such like. Yeah. I mean, some people some people are really sensitive, and that could like make them want to get out of the hobby forever and never even get, you know, to a point like where they're even interested in Fantasticus or other obscure species. And, you know, they want to encourage these people. Kind of what it does is it just changes the dynamics of how people view that animal. So I get asked, I don't know if you guys saw it, but I posted a picture with two hatchlings on my hand. I don't know how, but the thing went viral. I'm just shy of like 100,000 views on it, which is insane because I don't pay for anything. Wow. So... I mean, that picture went crazy, and the amount of inquiries I got, it, it, I had over 100 inquiries, and everybody wants to be on a waiting list, this, that, and the other, and I'd tell them, I don't do that. First come, first serve, unless you're a veteran, then you come first. Um, I support my buddies. But mm-hmm. you have you have all these people, and a lot of them are asking about problems that only existed with the wild-caught population. And so you have... You have these stigmas that end up following a species where, you know, Fantasticus are very frail, they die out of nowhere, and everything like that, where where that, uh, it it just, it doesn't do any good to to just defame or put negative, negative thoughts out there about a whole species because of lack of information. Yeah. Try it, Tim, jump in for a minute. Okay, um, so tell us uh, some of the things, Travis, when uh, when you started breeding them, some of the things you, you learned about them or researched about them. All right, so same thing. I did a lot of my research with uh, just a lot of phone calls, uh, private emails, things of that nature, because like, by the time I decided to get into them, I already kind of knew the people that I trusted based off of other species. So a lot of my information came from them, and basically what it boils down to for me is I only keep them in pairs. Uh, females do get aggressive towards each other, and there's nothing you can do about it. So I do only pairs. I keep them together from about sub-adult up until usually I don't split them up, if, especially if they're proven. I won't split them up for two years, and then I'll rotate them out to somebody else. But uh, so... I don't, like I said, I don't do fake seasons, but fall to winter is typically when breeding occurs. So you need to get your barometric pressure changes, your temperature drop, which during the fall to winter, I allow my room to get down to 65. is the coldest I let it get. So I, I just allow the natural things like that to take course. The animals are going to breed if they're healthy, if they're everything like that. Like I said earlier, you have to stress the calcium consumption they will crash. So, and you can tell, kind of like leopard geckos, they get to armpit sacks. The Fantasticus get, uh, just like by where their jowls are, under their chin, you'll see the females develop their calcium buildup. So you want to have your female have nice full sacks prior to the season. So, the breeding, how it works is 
like anything here. Let them do their thing. Once you see your first clutch, roughly every three to three and a half weeks is when I was seeing the next clutch drop. And if you ever witness breeding, nine times out of ten, there's a clutch already there because they typically breed right after she drops the uh, the clutch. And uh, where does, does she kind of reuse the same uh, egg-laying area in the cage? How do you kind of uh, keep track of that? Um, I'd say yes and no, but part of that's based off of my cage design. I run all my, my leaf litter at, towards the front of the cage. One, because I, I use my misters and I spray them back, and I don't want the leaf litter stain soaked. Two, it allows me for easy access to see and and inspect my leaf litter for eggs. Tip, the females will typically lay the, the eggs underneath the leaf litter. So under the leaf litter and kind of dependent on where you put it is where you're going to find them. So if your leaf litter is in the back under the, the uh, cork flats, that's where you're going to find it. So most of mine, I'd say probably 95% of my females lay their eggs under leaf litter. I do have a couple that'll try to lay them, fertile, actual fertile clutches, try to lay them within the cork or inside the plants. But for the most part, it's always under leaf litter. And if they do have any infertiles, it's it's more or less kind of like a, uh, just like a slimy, non-calcified egg that they'll just stick wherever. Usually on the leaf or the side of the glass, you'll see the uh, infertile egg just kind of stuck there. I leave those because I have seen females consume them. Some people say it works. Some people say it doesn't. It's just, uh, you know, they're getting their calcium back. So I leave them. I've seen it happen, but if you pull them out, I really don't think you'll see much of a difference either. I would imagine also possibly for um, the feeders, they might uh, feed on yeah. that, in which case the, yeah. the gecko would be getting that, those, yep. you know, that calcium yeah. back into her. Exactly. So there's, that's there's a, a lot really... Of Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that's interesting, uh, you know, a little trick that you've developed to to keep the leaf litter up in the front of the cage. Um, that's yeah. something, you know, that, that could be real tricky. And I know I've, I've had trouble with some different species trying to track down, you know, or, or keep track of where she's going to lay the eggs and, Exactly. And get them in the incubator before they desiccate. Or you always um, have any a other... female that'll dig in one spot and lay in another. So just by doing that, any of the Europlatics, but it, we'll just say in particular all of the even allies, a lot of them just, they, they want to be left alone. So you set up the cage, get it running right, and just stay out of there. So with me having as minimal amount of time in the cage to bother them, to stress them, to put my scent in there, that's that's what I go for. I didn't mention earlier, but I do, there's a, another issue, and one reason I use the UV lights is it helps cut down on mold. Um, where I'm at, like I said, I have to mist quite frequently, but I also don't want stagnant air. I don't want stagnant um, soil. So what I do is every day when I go in there to, to service the animals or whenever I'm going through and uh, topping off water reservoirs, I'll open up a whole row of cages. And they're not, I've never had a single animal come out, I'm not saying they won't, but I've never had them try to come out. But 
but I'll just leave the cage open for, I want to say about 10 minutes, 10, maybe 15 minutes, just for air exchange. Stagnant air is one of the worst things you can get in the tropical type of cage. Yeah, there's oh, really cool. a, a fine balance that you have to find there between uh, keeping the, that humidity in without letting the cage dry out too much and, and not keeping it too wet to where the mold develops. Yeah. Well, let's take a let's take a quick break, guys, and we'll come back uh, for some more uh, talk about the leaf tails. I'm just going to play the sponsor plug. Uh, hang tight, folks. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types, from white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com and on Facebook. Rainbow Mealworms is the largest worm grower in the world and selling to the public since 1956. If you need the highest quality mealworms, superworms, and crickets for your pets, contact them at www.rainbowmealworms.net. Ron Tremper is the biggest contributor to leopard gecko morph making, known worldwide for his amazing examples of living art. You can now download his Leopard Gecko Care app, his Morph Encyclopedia app called Leopard Gecko Pro, and visit his site, leopardgecko.com, to see where morphs are made. GiantLeopardGecko.com specializes in giant and supergiant leopard geckos with a focus on selectively bred exceptional lines of many different morph combinations, including high-end African fat tails and crested geckos. With over 17 years of experience in herpetoculture, Keith Kiggins brings you quality, integrity, and value. Check out GiantLeopardGecko.com on the web and on Facebook. Supreme Gecko is a great source for crested geckos, day geckos, and other species, including micro geckos. Wally Kern is a top-notch breeder and gecko enthusiast. Visit SupremeGecko.com for his available animals and supplies. ABDragons.com is your source for the highest quality doobie roaches, whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps. ABDragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt Reptile Heat Tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out abdragons.com online and on Facebook. All right, everybody, we are back. Excellent show so far. Uh, before we get started into the second half, I'd like to remind everybody to check out abdragons. Use the code GECKO at checkout uh, for 5% off your order. Also, next week's show is with Wally Kern of Supreme Gecko. We're going to talk about some more obscure and not too commonly seen species. So look forward to that show as well. All right, let's go ahead and bring on Travis uh, again. All right, Travis, why don't we uh, why don't we transition and talk a little bit? Uh, let's get some pointers and tips to, to that you've discovered uh, with breeding. Some specifics, uh, perhaps about uh, you know pairing or like somebody like me that would that. Is totally green and wants to learn about these guys. How do you know when a female is ovulating or ready to breed? Are there any signs? 
Not really. I mean, you're you're not going to be able to flip them over and see ovulation starting like you will your leopard gecko stuff like that. You you go a lot of what these animals are, and it drives kind of another reason I, I stress research is people want them. They want to buy it and breed it this year. I'm going to make money. That's not how these work. If you try to grow yeah. them fast, to overfeed them, like anything, they're going to get fat. The biggest problem I personally think in the reptile community is people overfeed their animals. Everybody wants big, fat animals to breed them tomorrow. I would yeah. strongly suggest growing your animals at a good, slow, healthy pace. Give them their time. And when the season naturally occurs or if you are, have the means to artificially create it adequately, once you provide everything they need, they're going to breed. There's not any one trick or and you're not swapping paper towels from one male to the other. No, there's there's really no tricks. You can try switching the males because you can have maybe a male that's of size but just not interested or vice versa. You can have a female of size but not interested. So you can right. try switching males. But, I mean, if you have a set pair and this is what you want and it's not happening, you just might have to wait another year. So well, that's just it. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people uh, think, okay, well, I'll get one male of these and I'll buy four females and next season I'll have all these babies to sell. That is totally yeah. the wrong attitude. You know, I mean, uh, for me, it would be something, you know, that I would just covet. Just that I'd be so proud to have them and, you know, be able to sit back and observe them and enjoy them that way. It wouldn't even yeah. be a matter of uh, breeding them. Um, yeah. You know, it's like, I would be, I'd be happy if I could keep them alive for a year. You know? Yeah, and that's, that's what, you can. That, that, and that's what I want to everybody to understand is if right. you set them up right, I take care of these animals less than anything else. You set them up right. I have everything on timers. My misters, if you get Miss King, I like them personally. There's a lot of other options, but Miss King works great for me. I could run my misters, and I control it down to the second. So I like my Miss Kings. All my lights are on timers. Um, I, I adjust that based off of I, every about two weeks or so, I, I look at what the uh, light cycles are in Madagascar, how, how long a daylight are they getting there. Now, whether that's relevant or not, it's probably irrelevant, but it makes me feel better, so I do it. Um, yeah, so, can't hurt. No, it, it could, but it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't hurt my collection. <laughs> so what, what I would say to that is I, I do have people that, you know, this, this past year I started off the season very female-heavy, and people wanted a one4 like, I, I'm telling you, I don't suggest that. I will sell you these animals if, you know, every, everything lines up and I know they're going to get home. You know, I'll let you have the 1.4, but I don't suggest it. You're going to stress that male out. You're going to, he's going to be just done. He's going to kick the bucket. You know, he not, I'm not saying that it's impossible. I'm not saying people don't do it successfully, but I have, I have over a dozen pairs. I run everything in pairs. If I don't have a male for that female, then she'll just grow another year. I'm I'm not in any hurry. I don't want to make 50,000 of these things and saturate the market, make a lot of money, and then everybody has dead animals. That's not my goal. You know, so mm-hmm. me, I want to produce what I can actually take care of, and I want to produce everything healthy. I don't want my breeders to, to go through the extra hardships because at that point, it kind of goes back to what I was saying with, with the uh, kind of with the leopard geckos and fat tails, waiting for that egg to hatch. That's not what you want. When that becomes a concern of yours is how many females can I put this male with, I question why you're getting into them. Yeah. Obviously, you want the money. You want the production. Yeah. So, Or people will say, I want a 1.4. You'll never hear them ask for different bloodlines. So where where are your concerns? So 
that's what I I strongly suggest. Just get a pair, have fun with it. You know, don't start with something too young, especially if you're if you're getting it shipped or if you're if it's your first um, any sort of platus or something that requires more attention. Get adults. Get a lone male. You'll find lone males. Get a lone male. Will you ever find a lone female? That shouldn't be a concern right out the bat because if you can't keep it alive, what good is having a pair of dead animals? Right. Get a lone male. <laughs> Learn with a lone male. You will find them. People don't want it, but that's how you you perfect the craft before you really invest in these animals' life. Yeah. And you may discover that it's you, you may keep them for six months to a year and say, yeah, this, I never see it. It's always hiding in the the cork or something, yeah. or, you know, I'm not saying they do that, but I'm just, you know, it may be something that just, yeah, I'm not interested in them anymore. Um, yeah. You know, you, you don't, or, you got to give it time. you can provide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's, that's, that's important. And I, well, you know, we see leopard geckos as a gateway gecko to the world of geckos. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of varying opinions on their care and, you know, like you were talking earlier about how people aren't always helpful, and you're absolutely right. I like how that that help is still that I, I don't know if it's a respect. What, what is it that, about people uh, that keep these these rarer species? There seems they seem to I don't know, man. They seem more mature. They seem um, more serious and more willing to help, which is that's that's the key. <laughs> yeah, and what I would say to that is. It's a very obvious observation when you're looking at it. But when you look at it, it's because it's not driven by money. When right. you're happy to keep a baby alive and you're, that's a successful season, that's a completely different outlook than if you could get that female to drop 32 so you could have a $20 gecko at the next show. So right. just, just the fact that these animals, one, they don't produce in the volumes that your typical, you know, your your money species, you're not getting the volume of animal. The care requires so much more. And like I was saying earlier, there's still a lot of learning going on. I change what I do. You know, I make little tweaks here and there all the time. You know, what type of water am I using? Am I distilling it? Am I using, you know, just taking chlorine out of it? Do I check any values? Does it matter? You know, well, I'll throw it right back at you. Where do you live? What is your, is your water hard? Do you have soft water, hard water? You know, there's so many variables that with species that are seen as hard or we'll just say anything especially coming out of Madagascar, they're not going to be around in the wild a whole lot longer because the cost of the burnt forest is worth more than it growing. So these animals that are coming in and the next, we'll just take um, um, the Pychmonides. If you haven't seen those, look up your old platus Pychmonides. They've eluded me for a long time. I know... Uh, Kevin Smith and Thomas Wood have a, a pair going. I wish them the best because I would love to see some of these captive born in America and maybe get some in five years when they release them. But there's there's just animals right now you could get Fantasticus. In five years, there's no guarantee that they're going to be available, they're going to be around, because if people get into it, to it for the wrong reasons, you could lose a huge collection real fast. And right. it's not going to be replaceable. Right. I think the community yeah. as a whole kind of is more helping and catering. Once again, though, they will help those who have vested their own personal time to learn. You can't go yeah. to these groups and these people and say, I know nothing, tell me everything, because they're going to probably select a, a choice finger for you, rightfully <laughs> so. So 
I mean, the, the knowledge is there, and they're not afraid of sharing it because you producing, you know, being what we'll, we'll call successful and bringing six, eight more animals to the market, that doesn't hurt anybody. It helps everybody. So there's not the money, there's not the production, and as a whole, all the information that you get from all these other breeders, it just strengthens that species. And, yeah, and you're right. As these forests get destroyed, five, ten years, they may not be a Madagascar, uh, you know, native habitat for these guys. And yeah. that's that's really unfortunate. Um, so herpetoculture may be, may be saving these species. And, you know, at the same time, we're under attack uh, as as herpetoculturists, uh, you know, with all these stupid bans they're trying to pass. Um, yeah. I mean, some of us have to be stewards to these species to keep them going. I I, I just, uh, I think it's a great honor and a responsibility to to be able to do that. And I'm sure you see it that way, right, Travis? Yeah, most certainly. Right. Most certainly. Well, I hope... you got to help however you can. can. Yeah, and, and and the gene pool is important, too. Is there enough genetics here now, say, just for the, we'll just talk about the Fantasticus? Are, are there enough genetics yeah. here now that you could diversify if you have to? I would I would venture to say that there is probably plenty of bloodlines to sustain a a good captive collection. I personally have five different bloodlines. Um, mm-hmm. I might have more coming in, but the problem is is dealing with sites, so I could only get stuff from the states and most people. If I didn't get it from somebody directly, I've probably gotten it from somebody who got it from somebody. So I, I backtrack my animals and figure out where they came from, and then I have to figure out who they imported them from so I know where they were collected from. I mean, it's it's kind of a circle of trying to figure things out to, in essence, hope that it's different. But the best bet is if you can find somebody that has some, and I'll suggest this for experienced people, find somebody with some either F1s or even wild cots if you have the means and ability to do it, just to have new blood. But, yeah. you know, I, I I don't know who's all still bringing them in because, like I said, it is a little bit of a paperwork hassle bringing them over and any sort of paperwork issue, the whole box gets sent back, and by that point, I mean, you have a box of a lot of dead animals. I mean, we all see pictures yeah. of them when they get seized at, you know, they're trying to smuggle in, you know, 100 chameleons, all these other things, but you also don't see the people who try to do it the right way. A box gets sent back, and they get 150 dead animals back because... They spelt somebody's name wrong, but all those animals paid the yeah. price for paperwork error. So there's there's a lot of yeah. problems when it comes into trying to move animals like this because it's they are sites, but that's only for international trades. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the eggs. Uh, say say you've gotten to the point where you've successfully paired and bred them. Um, what kind of uh, incubation, if any, uh, or what kind of um, ways do you incubate your eggs or get them hatched successfully? Yeah, the first thing I would suggest is, uh, I mean, if you're anything like me, I, I have big hands, so be careful. The very first clutch I ever had, I was through the moon. My kids were in there staring at me. Everybody's happy. I go to pick it up, and I squish the thing. So they're small, yeah. thin shell, hard, you know, hard shell, thin, thin shell eggs that, I mean, if you're not careful, they'll they'll squish really easy. So once you get them out carefully. How I personally do it is I either use a piece of styrofoam, which I found to work good for me. You'll see some people, they'll use, uh, like, uh, we'll just say like a juice cap. So, like, kid's apple juice, you take a cap and you'll fill that up with vermiculite. Because you don't, being a hard shell egg, if you put them 
on the uh, the moist whatever you're using. So we'll just say we'll just say vermiculite for everything, so it's easy. So if you're using moist vermiculite, and standard ratio one to one, something that's going to be slightly more saturated because it's not touching the egg. Um, you're just going to leave them like that. You don't want the egg touching it, but you do want the humidity in the cup. So I don't measure humidity. I don't do exact temperatures. I do room incubation, but I keep them colder. So I know in the area where they're at, all the eggs are roughly between 67 and 71 degrees. And it's not going to vary that much. You know, so I'm not, okay. one egg is not experienced that, that swing, but that is the, for that area where they're at. Um, I have not noticed anything where the closer to the 70s, if I get more males or females, I haven't noticed any sort of uh, temperature-dependent sex. Um, so you can try that if you want. I would just suggest trying to hatch a healthy animal. The colder it is, the slower it's going to grow, the healthier, bigger baby you're going to have. So that's why I try to keep them a little bit colder. Um, you do want air exchange. Uh, I'm going to be trying suspension this year. I was going to last year, but um, I just had my last my last clutch dropped. Uh, well, I don't know if it's my last, but I had another clutch dropped last week, and I just decided that'll be a 2015 venture. I want to make sure I get everything going good right now. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the tricky part. I I've broken day gecko eggs on occasion because they, you yeah, know, <laughs> they're just uh, little yeah. hard shelled eggs and they crack easy. <laughs> Yeah, um, and for the the duration, you're looking typically 90 to 120 days, 120 weeks. I've never had anything go that long, but I've certainly seen people where, you know, they'll have an egg hatch and 20 days later the other one hatches. So, I mean, if, if you don't know it's bad, I'd keep it keep it going because you never know. I mean, if you candle it, you know it's obviously either infertile or it's, it's a dead embryo. And I, I just leave them sit. It's not going to hurt anything. Okay, and that, I, I'm so, I'm sure this isn't the most important thing to to a lot of people that keep Fantasticus, but uh, the question has come up: Are there any morphs available, or is anybody working in any, on any special uh, color, uh, selectively breeding for color, or anything like that? There's, and God willing, there's never anybody saying morph names. If people start naming them, I'm going to be heartbroken. I'm probably going to want to punch them. Um, <laughs> They're, they are not morphs. It's just natural variation, phenotypic expression that would probably be determined based off of where they were originally located. Um, so, well, like wait, I said, I do have... Them, you're not going to start calling them candy canes or anything like that? I hope not. If I'll be so <laughs> sad. Um, but, I mean, I have stuff that's jet black, red eyes, a bunch of lichen, uh, some really leaf-stained stuff where, I mean, it, it really goes all out on on how good the vein looks. And uh, so then, like I said earlier, I have a guy, I just call him a blonde because I don't know what else to call him. He's just a really light one. So mm-hmm. you have people that everybody wants black. It's Anytime I post a picture of a black baby, then everybody wants it. Uh, the really yeah. red stuff, people really want that stuff. So there is a, a natural demand, but that kind of goes, like what I said earlier, a lot of what you see, a lot of what you see available is going to be the Kind of like the uh, light green with uh, maybe some brown spots. What you would see as being your your standard Europlatus. So, so you definitely have, you, breed, you wouldn't have more. You just have more desirable colors. Right. Okay. 
but you know, and I kind of related to uh, crested geckos. Uh, I, I think like wild when the crested geckos first came in, they had all these different colors genetically in them. It just took years to start pairing certain ones together to start selectively breeding for certain colors and patterns. And uh, would you say that this is going to be something similar where, you know, even a decade from now, people will be able to selectively breed for black and you'll have really, really dark black ones available regularly? So, all right, hold on. Sorry, man. My my daughter wants some dinner. <laughs> um, so, if I heard you correctly, you want to know if there's going to be some element of line breeding going on to create some sort of phenotype, correct? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, well, there certainly is a a line breeding attempt, but not for any sort of morph or anything. But kind of like I just said, there's there's high demand for dark animals. So if okay. you have, you know, like for me, I typically will pair my darkest male with my darkest female just because I know yeah. most of the animals coming from that are going to be something that's going to be more sought after. Right. And likewise, I also try not to breed any of my light brown or light green ones together because I know it's going to, it has to produce more of the same, which doesn't, it doesn't do anything bad. They're still beautiful animals, but I don't, I like having the, the more obscure or least common of things, even if it becomes common. So as more people are successful, I still want to have stuff. But I certainly don't want to name it. I do not want to have, you know, I don't want to breed this male, that female, and five years later call it, you know, the dark knight. No, I, I don't want that. I want it to just be <laughs> your platus fantasticus. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, I agree. I mean, with leopard geckos, it's just too far gone at this point to even do anything about it. But uh, yeah, yeah. But no, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, I, I mean, a black satanic leaf cow. I can see why that's appealing. I mean, they they would look the most. Uh, I don't know. Interesting in my you know in my opinion. Um, but yeah. you know, the one I one of the buying was very light. I thought it was very attractive. It was almost like a light gray. Yeah. It's, there's so many different just natural variations of, of what they look like that, I mean, in my opinion, they're all equally awesome to look at because when you really take them out and look at them, it's impressive how much detail and pattern, not just patterns and colors, but in an actual texture. And um, one thing we didn't talk about was the sexual dimorphism where the males have uh, tail notching. So yeah, let's talk about that. Tail. Yeah, so your males, there's when they hatch, the basis I go off of for my initial judgment of what I have is tail notching is a pretty big one. Females tend to have smooth tails where males have the notching where it looks in essence like a bug, a caterpillar or something. They eat little parts of the, the edge of the leaf. I always wondered about so, that, yes. That's awesome. Yeah, so the tail notching is a sign of being a male. Another one is, and it's none of these are 100%, you know, if it has tail notching, it can be a female. It's just not as likely. And uh, so the same thing goes for males tend to have, it, it looks like a teardrop or a white streak coming from their eyes. 
And the teardrop is another thing where if you see that in tail notching, well, I'm going to be pretty comfortable saying it's going to be a male. Um, another thing is, is some people, some people notice them, but there's little raised parts that you can find, like right, right around the shoulders and, and uh, sometimes on the neck and stuff, where you'll see little raised notches, which um, typically will indicate it's a male, having a more, more rough texture to them. So, in essence, the females are smooth all the way around, smooth body, smooth tail, nothing on their face, and the males are rough and dirty. I think it's fascinating that the males will have these little extra features, making it look and appear as if an insect has bitten a piece out of the leaf and the tail and giving them the impression that they, you know, the, the, you know, like it's been injured at some point or, you know, it looks yeah. like something actually did take a little bite out of the tail. And I, I didn't, yeah. I always wondered about why that was like, um, that's, well, see, that is I always, fascinating. What always, yeah, it's definitely interesting. And what I've always wondered is, is in the wild, what would draw the females? Is more tail notching more desirable? I mean, what is the, Obviously, it's evolution, Jeez. but why? So is well, does it give a is it evolution or intelligence? Is, is it in, is there something intelligent behind this that that made them look so perfect? I mean, uh, you would think it, I, I try. I'm just baffled as to how something evolved would be so perfect like this. Because you know, is it a gecko that took a look at its environment and said, "Okay, I got to start figuring out a way to blend in," and then that thought in its brain triggered the genes to start evolving the animal over time to look a certain way that it blends in with dead, with dead leaves? I mean, what is it intelligent design? What is driving the the process that makes the animal evolve into something like this? That's always been the big question for me. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, that's that's a highly loaded question because there's a lot of ways that, <laughs> that you could, you know, theorize why it happened. that one. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously in the wild, there would be, for any sort of evolution, there's either reproductive or survival incentive for any sort of evolution. So you're either going to have a higher chance of living or you're going to attract more females. So either the notching, in my opinion, does one of the two. So I don't know which way it would go. Uh, my females have no issues with the males with very little to no tail notching and vice versa. I never see any problems with the, the males that have a lot of notching. So, I don't know. It's In my opinion, with a species like this, the the range in which they are found is so vast, we could be looking at maybe this area has high tail notching and this area doesn't, but in captive collections, we just say they all look like this. And it's, you know, so there's so many possibilities to everything with it that, you know, I'll just say that I like it. I don't care why it happens. I just think it's awesome. I know. They're, they're perfect. They're perfect for their environment, and they're perfect uh, just as, as geckos. They really are. They're amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I can see why they're, why they're so coveted by you guys. Um, that's why I like them. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of picky, too, Travis. Like, you know, only certain geckos really get me uh, thinking, you know, seriously about keeping them and breeding them and you know, these are definitely yeah. one of those where where I think about it and I try to, you know, to, you know, learn more about them. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean that's 
I don't know. It's just incredible. And I, I mean, I like the leopard geckos because I'm I'm interested in the genetic chess game. That kind of keeps me stimulated. Yeah. So, you know. And, then, and see, you know, playing that's playing the uh, the Euro Platus, it's no longer a chess game and it's a lottery, and that's that's what I enjoy about it. Because like I I told you before, I didn't like going to the incubator expecting something. Right, right. So with these with these, I go and I'm just happy to see a baby. It's gonna look different every time. You know, I'm not gonna breed reverse type, reverse type, and get reverse types or anything of that nature. I'm gonna breed this to this. And something that looks nothing like them is going to come out, but it's different from its hatchling too. So, yeah, I mean it's it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of variability variability into them, but as a whole, it's you'll never be let down with any of the the phenotypes you can get. But there is, you know, the black ones they they do look awesome, especially because most of them tend to have red eyes. So you have, a, you know, yeah. that was a, the leopard gecko's dream. I want a black pearl, red eyes. Well, ain't happening, guys. So yeah, not yet, you anyway. look at this black fantastic with the red eyes, and it's it's all all everybody's dreamed about with, you know, with your morph species. Mm. So yeah, I think that's, that's why there's it. a lot of demand towards that. Well, um, is, you know, one, is there anything else that you'd like to touch on about the fantasticus before we – I'd like to just ask you about some of the other – you know, briefly about some of the other species that you keep, but they definitely want to give you a chance to mention any information on, on the leaf tails before we transition. Yeah, well, just real quick, kind of everything I've talked about, I just want people to understand that that is what works for me. That is how I do things, and it's not the only way. And by no means do I want anybody to say, oh, enigmatic reptiles is fantastic as nothing. There are a lot of amazing breeders who work with them. I mentioned, dropped a lot of names throughout this. It's a mm-hmm. community as a collective that just, as a whole, they all need credit because it's been a lot of work, especially from people who deal with these wild cuts that have made it even possible for me to grow like this. So I just want to con- continue to see not just Fantasticus. Fantasticus are the, the popular species of them right now. But all right. of them, all the Europlatus, all these species are just amazing to have and work with. I just would love to see, as a whole, them all just be taken in. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's cool. So, uh, <clears throat> all right, no, I I agree. And um, you know, a lot of people that are new to this, they, they don't, they they don't. It's not, and it's because of ignorance, but they don't know all that's got in, gone into, you know, gone into herpiculture all these years. Yeah. And, you know, even even with leopard gecko morphs, uh, people don't appreciate all that went into producing some of these colors and patterns, and how no, many years it. For the first year, they could name it and and try to claim the same amount of clout. I know, I know. It's 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 unfortunate. Um, well, it is. <laughs> it's it's a crazy time, that's for sure. It, I, I, yeah. I, I, it's hard to it's hard to predict like the future of of things, especially in the gecko community. Um, yeah. It, it just it just seems really uncertain right now. What do you what do you think? Uh, briefly, we'll talk. What do you think about the future of the gecko community? What do you think? Do you are you positive about the future of it? Um, I like the change I'm problems? seeing. Yeah, I, I like the change I'm seeing. Um, I remember years ago, because uh, John Scarborough from Gecko Bowl used to live out by me. And many, many years ago, I met him at a Krispy Kreme, and we did some gecko deals. And, uh, you know, I, he's always been into his uh, Peruvians, which was the same species I worked with. So we've always had a lot going. As a leopard gecko 
guy, I think he brought more to the community than than anybody else because he never did anything but better the community. He didn't ever waste his time, you know. And I like the guy, but I like also that as he's taken on these these more obscure species, he had such a reach, positive reach on the the we'll just say leopard gecko fat tail community that everybody else started seeing these other species and it's opening their eyes to stuff that a lot of people had been working with, but you just never saw it because if you were on, you know, what is gecko forums or any of the forums, you didn't see them. If you weren't, yeah. you know, that's kind of the good, like I was saying with Facebook is people get exposed to these animals that otherwise came on a list and people ask, what's a common name? And I'm sorry, that is a common name. It is 72 letters long. That's, that's what you call it. Yeah. So, you know, people, I like where the community is going because there's more interest in things that are not what you would call common. But it's it has to be done responsibly or else you'll see all these animals disappear from availability again. Yeah. And that's it. And this time if they disappear, they're gone for good because their native habitats are being destroyed. So. Yeah. Or they're going to end up being sites restricted. There's going to be all sorts of things. Captive collections are going to fall apart or get too inbred. So I like where it's yeah. going, but I'd like to continue to see, more than anything, I would like to see progressive thinking where people stop regurgitating information and either come up with fact, factual, scientifically-based information or experience-based information. There's too many people that speak as if they know everything about X species, but really there's so much more to be learned and absorbed by these animals. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, um, one of the other species that stands out when I look at your uh, when I look at your page are the um, I don't know the, the the scientific name, but those uh, geckos with the big black eyes. Can you tell us about those? What are those guys? Those are uh, Peridora masobi. Um, definitely were on my bucket list of species to own, and they have been a love hate relationship for a few years now. Um, amazing, amazing, amazing animals. And I tell everybody, no animal wakes up and says it wants to die. You're doing something wrong. But I swear there's times these geckos just prove me wrong because I'll have everything going. They'll be great for a year. And out of nowhere, they just get terribly sickly and will die. No change to anything. So I've been doing really good with them. I've had a lot of good success. I I'd love to say that I ironed out all the kinks, but I spent months talking with Matt Jazz and Neil and uh, other people who had, uh, Taryn, who had experience with not just keeping, but breeding and everything like that. Um, Peridor Masobi are definitely one of the most eye-appealing geckos out there. Uh, kind of goes along with the same thing. Everybody wants a, a stark black animal, not a, a faded gray, but a stark black animal. And then it's got the white spots all over and the big black eyes, black tongue. I mean, just majestic-looking animal. And uh, that is certainly a species. When I got into them, it almost felt like an interview because the guy I was buying them from, he asked me a gauntlet of questions. Hey, what's <laughs> this? Or how are you going to do this? What are you going to feed it? What's this? And it, no joke, it was like an interview to even own his animals. Like, it was a privilege. And, uh, That's awesome. you know, I... I, I liked that because it it showed me how much that these animals meant to him and other people because they're definitely not an entry-level animal, not at all. I would not suggest them to anybody who does not have a lot of experience and time because things go bad real fast with them, 
and they stress really easy. Stress with them is probably the biggest thing. People want to either too much light, you're in your room too much, things like that will stress that animal out. It's an amazing animal. I love them to death. Um, but I definitely don't suggest them as a as a pet for anybody who's not experienced. Have you been able to successfully breed them yet? No, I have not. That, it has eluded me. Maybe, maybe in time, as more captive uh, bred generations uh, get produced, maybe they'll be more uh, inclined to not be domesticated, but more in tune with you know living in captivity, perhaps. Yeah, the the problem with that is uh, I'm not alone in the in the failed attempts of captive production. There's very few people around the world who can say that they produce them at any sort of regularity. And uh, Matt Jazz was one of them. He was he was doing really good with them, producing a lot. And um, I'm pretty sure you could still YouTube. He had videos out where he went in great detail about the uh, Peridorum asobis and um, things like that. But it's there's very few people that are successful in it. So, I mean, I'm not alone in it. And it was, it was a very, very, uh, what to say, like productive community because everybody with them, they all want to help each other because it's not an easy species. You know, I, I still stand strong behind that they don't want to die. We are doing something wrong. But whatever we're doing wrong, it's got to be something, you know, either dietary or stress. I mean, it's got to be something that everybody as a whole is doing wrong. And likely it's it's just going to be a stress issue because that's one thing every keeper has in common is no matter what you do, these animals are going to be stressed because you're there. So that's my wow. consensus is it's probably a stress thing. And though, like I ended up putting them in a closet so I could still control everything, still light cycles. I have the air still blowing through there, but they don't see me. And they do amazing that way. So I chalk a lot of the the failed success or things of that nature just to stress. That's That's my best assumption on it. But amazing species. If you ever get a chance to see them, I def- even if it's a wild caught, not going to be as pretty, but amazing animals. If you get a chance to see them, definitely you. do it. What's that? I got an idea for you that may uh, help get you out of the get them out of your closet at least. Um, <laughs> why don't you consider? <laughs> why don't you consider um, having the inside glass on an exoterra or however you keep them uh, have it tinted? Could try that. Um, whether if them in the closet, to me, that is, I'm happy with that because if I get to the point where I need to see them to justify keeping them, then I'm out of it for just the proliferation of the species. You know, I, I love them, but I have pictures. If I really want to see them, I have pictures. I, you know, things like that. I could, I could hold on to that stuff. But But uh, I'm just thinking from the, I'm just thinking from the perspective that maybe it'd be easier where you could observe them without them observing you at the same time. You're able to see their more their natural movements or their natural behavior if they can't see oh, you. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, at, at night, awesome. red lights, you still get away with quite a lot like that. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So, yeah. so, kind of like your leopard geckos, you go in at night, red light, and, you know, you're quiet, nonchalant. You, you'll catch them doing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, I do a lot of my work daytime. 
you know, I have, I have two kids. It's nonstop with them and work and everything like that. So a lot of what I accomplish is still during the daylight hours. So yeah. I I try to leave them alone. They are, uh, they are impressive. I just yeah. posted a few pictures of them in the chat. And, and guys, check these out. These are, they're kind of, they kind of look like, they remind me of Millie but just with a, you know, different tail and crazy colors. Just, yeah. You know, high contrast. Their tail is, I mean, it's awesome. It's, uh, yeah. it almost looks like a cross between like a, like a Strophurus and, uh, I don't even know. It's just something Silly out Alice, there. Yes. Yeah. Strophurus, yeah. Silly yeah. Alice, is that the one? Yeah. So, because cool. I work with, with a bunch of other species, um, seven species of, of Gunnierosaurus, Elegans, five species of Zeroplatus. I'm starting to work with some uh, some Kaiserite newts, which is going to be fun. But and a lot a lot of things that I just enjoy looking at, and that's mm-hmm. kind of why I have the Masobi one because it's been a species I've always wanted, and once I got them. I knew I had to keep working with them. And there's been many times when I just get upset and I'm done with the species and I need to leave them with somebody else. And then, you know, one of my importers or a friend or somebody was like, hey, you want one? Oh, man. All right, I'll take it. <laughs> so it's just one of those things that I definitely a species to always admire. But mm-hmm. if you're not experienced and not willing to make uh, you know, take that risk as well as make changes, even if it doesn't seem like it might be the best judgment, you have to try to figure them out. Yeah. One of my bucket list geckos is uh, the New Zealand green gecko. Those things are incredible for me. Oh, yeah. Seth, I think the the uh, grays. Yep. The Nultinus, right? Nultinus. Yep. Nultinus, yeah. yeah. See, those, those are awesome. Um, I know of a few people that move them around every now and then. But that's another species. You're looking at a single live birth if you're lucky. Yep. So it's a species that will be kind of like a novelty pet, you know, kind of like the Masobis. If you're good enough at keeping things alive and you want it, awesome animal to mm-hmm. have, but you're never going to see them flood the market. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do they What do they run, what are, if I may ask? What do those guys cost? Well, I don't know what they run these days, but I, I know these always hover around. The two thousand, but last I heard, they, some were spiking up to five. Wow! Yeah, that's I a, think it's going to depend on a, your importer and, and everything like that. That's a gamble too to put that kind of money out and hope for the best, right? I mean, well, it, you know? that's why you don't get them unless you're ready for them. You know, that's what's sad is you still see masobis. I actually saw somebody posting things, and uh, I've been trying to help them and help a couple other people that bring them in, wild cots, and they're like, oh, I want to sell them. Like, you're, they're already dying in your, you know, your collection. Like, donate them to somebody or figure out a way to keep them alive. Don't just try to make your money back. I'm, it's, you know, you're arguing to the wrong person because they're in it for the money, which is why they're wholesaling everything. But right. they, they come in and they just fall in the hands and they die a week later if they're lucky. And it's, it's horrible. And so, you know, I, Kind of like everybody goes, oh, I, I saved this gecko from PetSmart. No, you actually, you know, gave justice to why they keep breeding them. So it's like if you're buying from these wholesalers at this cost, it's like a catch-22. You might have a chance to save this animal, or you're going to have something die by the time you get it, and you're paying retail costs for it. 
So, I mean, it's it's a hard yeah. balance of trying to keep a species going and getting good stuff. The captive bred animals are pretty hardy, similar to the Fantasticus. If you're still playing around with wild caught, you're gonna have a pretty frail animal. But captive bred, they're pretty they're pretty durable. Mm-hmm. Set them upright, leave them alone. They'll do fine. Yeah. And you work with some uh, ball pythons too, right? I used to. Um, like I said, my whole hot room is gone. Um, I okay. do still have three ball pythons. It was stuff that uh, I drove down and was talking with Brant Rustich for a while, and this is back when he first started doing his prospects, you know, which was his captive patch or imported stuff that was different. And I've raised them for three years, and I want to get production out of them because I they look different enough. But I, I'm i not actively doing anything. You know, once I started selling off on my Desert Ghost, which was like my morph I always wanted. So once I sold off my Desert Ghost stuff, I committed everything to, if they're gone, everything's gone. And uh, mm-hmm. the cold room's going to expand and take over the hot room now. So the only hot species I'm still going to have is going to be my Strophiris ciliaris ciliaris and uh, my son has a bearded dragon. Other than that, everything else is going to be gone. Strophiris is so nice. game, though. You're, you're chasing more, chasing money. Yeah, and, and it's and it's tough. It's, there's too many people doing it. I think what's happening now, Travis, yeah. is um, I think what's happening now is everybody that got into leopard geckos and ball pythons for the money is seeing that that was the that was a mistake, and they're being forced out. And I think that's why there's just a whole bunch of these things. Because the yeah. people that are selling their collections are obviously aren't the people that got in it for the right reasons or else they'd still be doing it. So, you know, we're seeing yeah. you know, people dropping their prices and they're basically destroying their own markets. But they're yeah. you know, it it's just, every it's year. Very, yeah, and I think it's gonna it'll it'll settle and I think this is kinda of, kinda of being like this is gonna be like a cleanse. And, you know, the wrong yeah. people will get out, the right people will stay in, and it's gonna come back again in the next few years. That's my optimistic prediction. Um, yeah. So, you know, well, you either sell so quality care. or quantity. Right, right. I mean, I have some really nice morphs here that I, I just won't even put them up for sale because I'm not going to sell them for what other people are selling them for because I know yeah. my geckos are special and I'm not going to take a, I'm not going to take anything less than a certain amount for them. And if they don't sell, yeah. well, that's fine. I'll keep them here forever. You know what I mean? Well, that's that's how but, I was. I was talking with uh, Jamie Carnes not too long ago, and I, mm-hmm. I talk with him every now and then. He's a good guy good animals um i was talking with him because i was explaining to him how i felt selling because i had the same thing i had projects i was working on for five plus years for leopard geckos and when i decided to sell them all it was like i'd never even released these yet like nobody's seen these and i was like well i just got to do it and so you know once you get rid of the this is my creation mentality in my opinion i've never felt more free knowing I don't have to worry about morphs. My baby hatching is exactly what I want, and I'm not worried about morphs. It was the biggest weight off my back because I guarantee you right now, every leopard gecko, fat sale, ball python, uh, probably all of your uh, ciliatus, everybody is going through their collection, making pairing lists and everything like that because they need to make that perfect animal and it's going to change their season. And I got tired of that, you know, and, once I, I started just working with species where, you know, Fantasticus, if I hatch that egg, people want it. That's, it is already what everybody wants. 
there's no difference to them. You know, it's the species is what everybody loves, not the morph. To me, the best, more, like the biggest relief was not having to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I agree with you because I also was that guy where you're sitting there staring at your collection and you're, you're, you know, two days later you finally come out of the room and you go, that's the pairing, and you're looking forward to seeing what you can produce. That's a lot of fun, but it's more stress than you realize until you give it up. Hmm. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I've never really thought of it, that part of it as being stressful, but, um, yeah, it's to me it's part of the fun, I think. I, mean, I can appreciate your opinion yeah. on it. Um, but I, I, look, I look forward to seeing my projects evolve every year, like get better and, yeah. you know, I, working towards certain goals. And that, that for me is what keeps me captivated and keeps me doing it. Yeah. But like like you, yeah, I, though, Travis, I, I also appreciate the species. And uh, I, have, yeah. I have several really cool things here. Uh, I don't brag about what I have here because as soon as I do, everybody else starts buying what I, you know, what I have. So I like to keep that, yeah. keep my special stuff, you know, kind of quiet. And you know maybe someday I'll start showing some of it off, but you know not now. Not yeah, now. I don't ever talk numbers. Yeah. People do the same thing. You know, yeah. ask how many animals I have, and it's it's irrelevant. That's, I have this yeah, many species, smart. and that's that's what you need to know. But you don't need to know how many pairs I have. You don't need it's it's irrelevant. If, I mean, if you're a friend and you come over, or you know something like that. But there are certain things that just like morphs, you keep them secrets and. And whether it's warranted or not, that's kind of up to you. But, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. Anybody kind of going back to Fantasticus, anybody who ever is interested in Fantasticus, you know, you can always PM me. You can send me a message, enigmaticreptiles.com. You can Facebook, mm-hmm. anything like that. I am more than willing to answer questions, but all I ask is just do some basic research first because I would like to see these things get more popular. Right now, it's a big mm-hmm. trend because somebody posted the one with the wings, you know, that Photoshop Fantasticus with the wings. That's been going viral yeah, again, so everybody wants Fantasticus. Know, like, yeah. But they don't have so, wings. You know, once, yeah. <laughs> I've, none of mine have yet. Maybe I'm doing something wrong, but. <laughs> well, so, hey, Travis, I would just we, like, uh, we're getting. We're, yeah. go, hold on. All right, go ahead, and then I have one more question for you. No, no, that's all you. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I was. I just wanted to touch on quickly uh, your photography. Um, your pictures look great. Uh, do you have any tips on uh, for people out there that want to take really good pictures like yours? Okay. Well, I kind of lucked out. My wife um, is a newborn photographer, so I mm-hmm. have some pretty good equipment. Um, I did have to get. I run a photo tent, everything like that. My pictures look okay. I, me personally, I think they look okay. I know what the animal looks like, and it's always hard to get that. You hear everybody complain about that with emmerine leopard geckos. Oh, I swear it's more green in person. Well, I feel the same way. It's more black. It's more red. So <laughs> the, the best tips I can give you with photography is, one, you have to have good lighting. If you're going to have, if you're going to create a shadow, make sure you're creating it where you want, how you want, so you're not distorting the animal or taking away because shadow is such a dark depth that it creates a whole different element that your eyes attracted to. So have good lighting. Make sure you know where you're putting your shadows if you want it. Don't get caught up in the equipment you're using. You know, I have good equipment, but, you know, my camera, you know, someone that says, oh, you have a good camera that takes good pictures. Well, I have a good oven. I still burn cookies. So it has <laughs> nothing to do with the equipment. It's the skill of whoever's using it. So having a good camera is good if you know how to use it. So just get something, a, a simple point-and-shoot that's decent. You You can do equally amazing images 
because you'll know how to run that camera better. So don't get caught up on getting top of the line, you know, $4,000 camera, because if you're not good with it, it's not going to matter. And the other thing is, is I create a lot of false sceneries where all I do is I use um, a 32-gallon quart, well, that was dumb, a 32-gallon uh, tub lid, and I create my scenery on there, get it all set up, do all my test shoots, and then I expose the animal to that scenery for as short a time as possible. Um, especially things, my Fantasticus, they just hop away. I don't know if you, well, I'll talk about that real quick. Fantasticus don't really walk as much as they hop when, when they're not just strolling their cage. They kind of just hop everywhere. So anyway, but the least amount of time your animal spends under those lights, stressed out, in front of you, you're sitting there moving back and forth, making all sorts of sounds and noises, trying to get to that random position to get that perfect picture. You know, you want to make sure that you have everything set up and running good before you put the animal out. You know, I've right. tried to help people, and the animal's been in that photo tent for 20 minutes. I'm like, you're never going to get that animal still. It's, it's freaked out. So <laughs> good lights, yeah. just get equipment that you're good enough with, and expose the animal to to the session as short a time as possible to get them as calm and as best you know represented as possible. So that's all I would say. And don't don't Photoshop your animals. When you saturate stuff and your gecko is amazingly bright orange and the white paper towel is blue, I mean, you just look like an idiot. So don't <laughs> Photoshop your images. If you need to, you can color correct. You can do simple things to adjust brightness. You know, you could clone out, you know, your finger that was in there to stop it from jumping. You could do simple things, but don't change your animal. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's important. Right. Uh, people are too quick to use, uh, you know, the, the, the programs to make things look better than they are. Um, yeah. Sometimes people are just trying to get them to look the way they actually look, too. And, I mean, it's hard to sometimes, like you say, it's hard to capture some color sometimes. Um, yeah. But... Yeah. And that, that's um, what I'm saying, like, minor color alterations, fine. Just keep it real. Make your animal look how it looks. Right. Exactly. And Especially that's, that's if it's a, a for sale image. Well, that's true, yes. Yeah, you want to represent it appropriately. I like what you I like what you do for veterans. I like the fact that your veterans come first. Um, that's important to me, too. I do a lot for the American Legion. I'm an SAL. And, uh, yeah. Uh, I think I think that's honorable. So that's that's and thank you for for your service, Travis. Thank you. Yes. Um, so, all right. Well, definitely we veterans coming to the end. What's that? No, I was going to say definitely veterans get a priority through my business. Um, Good. Uh, I'm a veteran. My wife, she does law enforcement work as well. So mm-hmm. definitely support them and. Uh, I'm going to be trying, hopefully this year I won't be as busy. I don't know if you remember, but I ran an event called Reptiles for the Wounded where it's nonprofit, everything that's made. It's an auction event that I host. All all animals sold go to, uh, all profits go directly to Wounded Warriors Project. I plan on starting that up again uh 2015. Okay. So um, if I'm going to spread it the word like, like crazy once I do get confirmation and get everything approved through the VA again or through uh, Wounded Warriors okay. Project. So. Well, let me let me know when you do that, and um, if you want to pop on the show for a few minutes and announce it, you know we can do that. Yeah. Uh, if you need if you need animals, I'll be happy to donate animals to it too. So. Sounds good. I'll keep you guys all in the loop. Awesome. Well, Travis, it's been a great show, and I I just want to thank you for giving us your time and um, some of your your insights and information on this great species. 
And um, I think it's a, a go-to episode for people that are, you know, thinking about Fantasticus. And uh, um, I think it's a, definitely a program that will endure. So um, why don't you give out your information one last time so people can find you. Yeah, well, I just want to say also thank you to you. Um, I know you have Wally coming on. He's another good guy, works with a lot of crazy species. Awesome that yep. you're bringing in more obscure stuff. I, I'm glad that you're making it more mainstream, at least the information. Um, yep. So my information, once again, I'm Travis Cousy. I'm Enigmatic Reptiles on Facebook. I think I have Pinterest, but don't try to follow me there because I don't share. Um, so Enigmatic Reptiles or EnigmaticReptiles.com. Um, if you're going to send me an inquiry, I do not do priority on anything. Just follow me, and if you see me posting pictures of babies, you know it's time to start asking. So, sorry for, just sorry once for again, thank you for your wrong. time. Absolutely, Travis. And uh, you have an open invitation anytime you'd like to come on. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. All right, have a good night. Take care. All right, folks, uh, another awesome episode comes to a close. I'm going to go ahead and play the outro, come back with my closing remarks. Hang tight. Be right back. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. The jazz music you heard tonight was generously donated and created by Jeremy Turgeon of J&D Reptiles. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for the great musical pieces. You can check out Jeremy at J&D Reptiles on YouTube and on Facebook. And a very special thank you to our news anchor, graphic designer, and audio tech, Steve Barker. All the graphics, audio sponsor plugs, and music overlays were assembled by Steve. Check out Steve on YouTube at BC Barker Creations. He has some terrific videos for the herb community with amazing geckos and snakes. Please support the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance and U.S. ARC. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to support both of these organizations. Please donate to U.S. ARC so that they have the funds needed to legally protect pet owners' rights nationwide. You can donate to the U.S. ARC Legal Defense Fund at www.usarc.org. If you would also like to learn about advocacy and how you can take action on a state and local level, please subscribe to the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance newsletter and blog at www.usherp.org. All right, folks. Uh, closing remarks. Well, wow, it's a tough one for me tonight. Usually things come to me a lot quicker, but um, what do I take away from this? Well, number one, I've learned a lot more about Europlatus fantasticus. And number two, I hope uh, some of you folks out there that are uh, new and excited um, and, you know, getting involved with geckos, uh, definitely take some of the good advice that we have seriously about, um, you know, doing this for the right reasons. And um, if you do it for the right reasons and you find that certain species that you really love and that you really care about, you know, you won't be concerned about the selling part so much. If, if they sell great, if not, no, no big deal. Um, it's all about enjoying the experience of keeping them. That's the point. And, um, you know, and it's an, it should be an honor to, to be a steward for some of these species, I, in my opinion. So I hope you guys enjoyed the show. And uh, I'm just going to mention my sponsors, our sponsors, uh, Dale's Breed of Dragons, biggest reptile supply distributor on, in the Northeast now, uh, 
they do all the shows from Maryland up to New Hampshire. And they are also the master distributor for FlexLot Heat Tape. And you can check out their new site, FlexLotHeatTape.com. Also, AB Dragons, AB Dragons, best Dubia roaches um, that you can find. Use the code Gecko at checkout for 5% off your order. ABDragons.com. GeckoBoa.com, we talked a little bit about John Scarborough tonight. Great breeder, great guy in the hobby, working with some awesome animals, really nice different species, including leopard gecko morphs. Check out GeckoBoa.com. Supreme Gecko, Wally Kern, is going to be on next week. Don't miss him. Another great keeper and breeder in the hobby, working with some day geckos, cresties, all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, So check out SupremeGecko.com. OhioGecko.com is is run by by, hmm, Gerona Blank. Uh, Ohio Gecko is run by how can I forget his name oh my gosh anyway um, geckoforums.net and Ohio Gecko owned by the same guy I can't believe I forgot your name dude Um, check out ohiogecko.com he's got awesome tangerines and really nice fat tails like the starburst and uh, just really cool stuff all right, Rainbow Mealworms, rainbowmealworms.net, biggest worm farm in the world. Check out rainbowmealworms.net. Great worms, great prices. Reptiles Express. Reptiles Express is business you want to use to get your FedEx labels. Best customer service, best pricing. Reptilesexpress.com. And get all your shipping supplies to them, too. Ron Tremper. Okay, Ron Tremper. You know him, you love him. Leopardgecko.com. He's done so much for leopard geckos over the last 30-plus years. Uh, it brought us the bandit, emmerines, all kinds of crazy morphs, um, all kinds of different Tremper albino variations, raptors, uh, eclipses. Check out Ron Tremper, leopardgecko.com. And last but not least, Daryl and Kay Burton of Longhorn Geckos. Longhorn Geckos is specializing in top-quality bandits, Pastel raptors, tangelos, super tangelos, and select wild types. So definitely check out Longhorn Geckos on Facebook and their website coming soon. And the guy that I forgot his name is Thad. Thad Uncover from Ohio Gecko. Sorry, Thad. I don't know how that slipped my mind tonight. Everybody, I want to thank all of you for being just great guests. Uh, I mean, great listeners, great followers, uh, great fans of the show. Uh, we've got a lot of great guests on the show tonight um, and over the years and uh, last year especially. So uh, more to come. What do you think? Uh, I'm feeling a little rock and roll tonight. How about some Metallica to take us out? 